Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you are with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. All good martinis today. So after having to... Uh, go through almost a half an hour of Kamala Harris coverage yesterday. We figured we'd cleanse the palate a little bit and, uh, and and find some good news. But there's actually plenty of good news to choose from today, which is great. We're brought to you today by the Bradley Speaker Series, Conceived in Liberty. For more information on that, go to the Bradley Foundation website, bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. We'll have more on their latest feature interview in just a moment. But, Jim, we've got a breaking martini from the Middle East, and it's a much better one than our breaking martini from the Middle East last week, which was, of course, the massive explosion in Beirut. Now, the President of the United States announcing, uh, really right as we're recording this, late on Thursday morning, that there are now normalized relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. In the joint statement, it says this historic diplomatic breakthrough will advance peace in the Middle East region and is a testament to the bold diplomacy and vision of the three leaders and the courage of the United Arab Emirates and Israel to chart a new path that will unlock the great potential in the region. All three countries face many common challenges and will mutually benefit from today's historic achievement. There are, of course, uh, things that that both sides have agreed to here. But, uh, Jim, it's not that often that uh, folks in the Middle East, particularly in the Muslim world, say, yeah, we're on good terms with the Israelis now. Uh, We've seen it with Egypt now for over 40 years. And obviously, uh, Jordan's on decent terms, even a little bit of thawing with the Saudis lately, probably mainly in solidarity in the fight against Iran. But uh, what do you make of Israel and the, the UAE finding normalized relations? Yeah, every once in a while, first of all, like there are days we kind of stretch for three good martinis. These are three really good martinis. And this one seems to come like a bolt out of the blue. Um, according to the Jerusalem Post, it's going to be called the Abraham Accords, which is appropriately biblical. And uh, um, it's the first of its kind since Israel and Jordan signed a peace treaty back in 1994. Uh, the Israel-Israeli uh, peace deal was signed back in Jimmy Carter's administration, probably represents the greatest foreign policy achievement of Jimmy Carter. Not a ton of competition for that <laughs> title. and uh, But it's significant. Now, it's also worth noting the Egyptian people are not terribly fond of the Israelis, but at least there is no longer a declared state of war or de facto state of war. Uh, look, hat is off to Mike Pompeo. Hat is off to the Trump administration. This is uh, not something, and they, they managed to keep this deal largely secret all through the negotiations, and it simply comes out, and here we are. Um, it's not by itself, but it is one more step in the direction of uh, peace between the Israelis and the Arabs. You, you can kind of see the handwriting on the wall. Yes, you're still going to have Hamas and Hezbollah and all these groups that have dedicated themselves to destroying Israel. And, you know, someday we will drive the Jews to the sea and then all of that usual stuff. But if you've been living in this region for the past two generations, you've now recognized that, no, Israel's not going to be destroyed any day. And in fact, as you mentioned, in a very strange way, you know who we have to thank for this, Greg? Who? Barack Obama and everybody in his administration who were the architects of that god-awful deal with Iran. In part because it freaked out the Arabs, recognizing the United States out of the blue and for terrible geostrategic miscalculations, was suddenly cozying up to the regime in Iran. Uh, it freaked out Israel and, and Bibi Netanyahu, obviously, but also a whole bunch of Arab states. Like, wait, what the hell is the United States doing? 
And all of a sudden, everyone had aligned interests. Donald Trump comes into office. You may recall the Saudis who gave him that, you know, ostentatiously over-the-top welcome on his first foreign trip, uh, in part because all of a sudden the possibility of the Obama administration being convinced that Iran's regime was trustworthy and, and could be, you know, pursue only civilian research of nuclear weapons for the next decade or so. Um, that basically the, the freaked everyone out and made them realize, okay, what are our real interests here? And I think a lot of Arab states looked at it and said, yeah, we hate the Israelis, but we don't think the Israelis are ever going to conquer us. We don't think the Israeli, you know, the Israelis generally go after the Iranians more than anybody else because they're preeminently concerned about the Iranian nuclear program. So in this very strange alignment of interests, everybody was able to start talking to each other in, in ways that they had not in the past. And now, a couple of months before Election Day, the Trump administration has a genuine, indisputable, shining foreign policy accomplishment that hopefully uh, will last a really long, really long time. Kudos, Mr. President. Kudos, Mike Pompeo. Kudos to all the diplomats involved in this. Um, in a year that's had a whole bunch of bad news, this is a really pleasant surprise and probably a bit of good news we really needed at a time like this. Yeah, it also says in the statement that the UAE and Israel will immediately expand and accelerate cooperation regarding the treatment of and the development of a vaccine for the coronavirus. Now, I know it's all a moot point because the Russians already came up with the vaccine. We talked about that <laughs> earlier this week. But uh Jim, um, and it says, you know, it's going to save Muslim lives, Jewish lives, Christian lives throughout the region. And when we've seen major medical breakthroughs, uh, it's not too uncommon to see the Israelis at the forefront of that. And so uh, to see uh, the resources of the UAE, because they're really rich, uh, to get connected with that, too. And, and I'm sure they've got some good scientists there, too. Uh, hopefully we'll uh, have even more hands on deck to get closer to what we need here. You know, Greg, there's really nothing to make an Arab rethink his hostility to Israel an Israeli vaccine against the coronavirus. <laughs> I will not want the Jews. Oh, wait. Oh, it works. Oh, OK. All right. Never mind that. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a lot going on in the world. And there's actually some good news today. But uh, trying to make sense of everything that's going on can be pretty difficult. And that's where the Conceived in Liberty Bradley Speaker Series can come in. This is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. So it really doesn't take much of your time, but it really helps you understand where we are on some of these critical issues. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring renowned scholar Robert P. George. He's the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. Uh, George is a 2005 winner of the Bradley Prize and a member of the Bradley Foundation's Board of Directors. In this episode, he makes the case against judging historical figures by present standards and for telling the truth about America's history, protecting the integrity of the institutions of civil society, and being more understanding of those who have perspectives different from our own. All of that in 15 minutes. It's going to be worth your time. That's Bradley, with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. BradleyFDN.org slash liberty. All right, Jim. Uh, most eyes are on the presidential race, of course, for 2020, but uh, control of the House, control of the Senate, also very, very important. 
We talked about how the Free Beacon had a story about Amy McGrath forgetting to pay property taxes when she lived in Virginia six times in five years. Uh, This was before she packed up and moved to Kentucky just so she could run for office. Uh, Well, now they're taking a look at Sarah Gideon. She is up in Maine, and according to the latest polls, she's up anywhere from about three points to possibly as much as eight points against Susan Collins. Susan Collins definitely one of the targets for the Democrats this year. But Jim... A weird thing happened on the way to uh, Sarah Gideon being part of the party for women. Uh, And this is what the the story from the Free Beacon is about. I'm going to get a little bit uh, specific here, but I think it's important for everybody to understand. Democratic Senate candidate Sarah Gideon repeatedly killed bills to outlaw female genital mutilation during her tenure as the Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives. Gideon leveraged her leadership position in the Democrat-controlled legislature to kill two separate bills that would have criminalized the practice of severing the clitoris of infant girls and sewing their vaginas shut. Instead, the Democrats supported a different law that would have funneled $150,000 to her political allies to educate Mainers about the practice instead of criminalizing it, according to a former state legislator who spearheaded the push to stop the mutilation. Uh, There's only 12 states in the United States that don't ban female genital mutilation. Maine is one of them, and it's at least due in significant part to Sarah Gideon. So the next time they tell you they're the party for women, Jim, there should be a giant asterisk there. Yeah. Now, here's we mentioned the uh, uh, the rival or the, the Democrat attempting to knock off Mitch McConnell. Most Republicans are not that worried about Mitch McConnell. Most Republicans are indeed worried about Susan Collins. Uh, if you're looking for reasons for confidence, you could say Susan Democrats have been convinced they're going to knock off Susan Collins roughly every six years going back decades. And it generally doesn't work. She's always managed to win re-election back when Obama was winning the state by a wide margin in 2008. So she's probably, she's much tougher than people expect. But let's face it, those poll numbers are pretty serious. It's, you know, Maine has been drifting away from Republicans for a while. Democrats have had a, you know, a target on her going back to the Kavanaugh vote. And so it's very clear, you know, Democrats really, really want to beat her. They're going to dump as much money as they need to, et cetera, et cetera. However, you'd rather not nominate someone who has an issue like this, and particularly who's going to be making the argument, Susan Collins isn't good for women or something like that. Now, here's the thing. If you're a Democrat and you've opposed this in the past, well, first of all, shame on you. This is a really bad position. This is not justifiable. This is not something like, oh, I'm worried about this legislation being Muslim bashing or something. No, no. This is a ban on female genital mutilation. It is exactly what it sounds like. There's really not a good reason to say no to this. The fact that she did, like she could jump out and say, you know what, I was wrong. And you try to get this issue behind you. You try, like I talk about with the, the failure to pay taxes. If you've got something lurking in your background that could derail your bid, get out in front of it, put it out there, take your lumps in a bad news cycle, and then do it. Now you know Susan Collins' campaign is going to be hammering her on this and justifiably hammering her on this. Does this guarantee that Susan Collins is going to win? No, no, we just don't know. Um, you know, how things are going to shake out. But now Susan Collins has a really good glaring issue that I think, I think it just, you know, gets people deep in their guts. I think people are going to wince when they hear about this. And it's going to be very tough for her to explain this and say, oh, I thought the Trump administration was, I thought this was an effort to bash Muslims or something like that. No, no, this is not something you can easily justify. You mentioned this, the fact the figures nationally. Nobody should be on that side of this issue. And uh, she has made this choice and she probably will pay a price of the ballot box uh, over that stance. No, you're exactly right. Um, and we'll see how much. Uh, obviously, the the vote to acquit Trump and, and the vote to confirm Kavanaugh are, are the main 
arguments uh, for the Gideon campaign. But yeah, I mean, the arguments that you said are, are exactly right, that, uh, you know, it's discriminatory against Muslims and uh, also racist towards the large immigrant community from Somalia. I'm not sure if you asked the women in those communities, um, apart from other people, if they would agree with that. I, I don't think they would. What's wrong with saying, no, they shouldn't do this? We don't believe in this. We don't support this. We don't believe that this is a legitimate medical procedure. We believe this is barbarism. We believe this is mutilation. We believe this is cruelty. Yeah. If, if you can't say that, don't run for the Senate. Exactly. That's that's not too. I'm not asking too much out of you. <laughs> not that hard. All right. On to our final good martini today, Jim. And um, for those wondering, the last one was good because this is coming to light, not because Sarah Gideon blocked legislation <laughs> to ban female genital mutilation. But uh, let's talk about the latest job numbers. We've done this a couple of times now in the past week, and I can keep doing this every week if the numbers keep improving like this. For the first time since March, Jobless claims, first-time jobless claims, totaled 963,000 last week, the first time under a million in roughly five months. Uh, the Wall Street estimate was it was going to be 1.1 million this week. Uh, the continuing claims still cringeworthy high at 15.5 million, but even those are down more than 600,000. So, Jim, as we've said in the last couple of times we've talked about this, it's not going to go back down to where it was in February anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, but we're heading in the right direction. And hopefully, as people cautiously and, and carefully reopen, the numbers will get even better. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been this uh, continuing stream since the coronavirus pandemic really hit. We saw the widespread closures and the full scale of the economic hit became clear. Well, it was still another million new filing front of OK, you know, that's bad. There, there's no way about that. I noticed the coverage is almost a million. <laughs> Okay, yes, that's true. But the number is moving in the right direction. And I, look, it gets down to this point of, okay, we have not, uh, we, the country has gradually opened up. Some people would argue we opened up too fast. Some people argue we opened up just right. Uh, some people, quite, these number of people would say, we, no, we opened up uh, too slowly. I also want to point out that probably as this country, when this virus was hitting and the country effectively shut down, thinking about mid-March, there were large chunks of the country where it really wasn't there yet. It hadn't hadn't spread to these locations. You know, there there are still counties in this country where they have one case. Generally, they're rural. Generally, pretty much every city in the country has now had a significant number of cases. Big cities have had lots of cases. But by and large, this was a northeastern and large international air travel hub type issue. And it had not spread to every little corner of the United States. Now, you probably remember, we shut down state to, you know, nationwide. We didn't have enough testing. We didn't know who had it. You could be asymptomatic and unknowingly spreading it to a lot of people. So we inflicted a lot of economic pain, and we probably did it on a whole bunch of communities that really didn't need to do it at that point because the coronavirus had not yet arrived. But there was no way of knowing, so we did that. March turns to April, April turns to May, people start getting a little antsy, a little frustrated, the economic consequences become clear. But people are like, well, if this is what we got to do, fine. Although you can kind of hear you know, increasing levels of grumbling across the country. Then we have the George Floyd protests. Now, what happened to George Floyd was terrible. It's completely understandable that lots of people would want to take to the streets and say, this is unacceptable. This is a violation of the Constitution. This is a violation of the American concept of equal justice under the law. Except we saw a whole bunch of people going out in crowds after people have been said, you can't go out in crowds. You're saying you can't go, you can't keep your business open. 
You have to stay shut down. You can't have your employees in there. You have to shut your doors. Yes, this may be putting you out of business. You have to make that sacrifice for the greater good. And then all these other people in the streets, no, they don't have to make that sacrifice. They can still gather. That's fine. Lots of people right around then said, oh, okay, these rules don't really affect us because you guys seem to think the virus won't come to these protests. Uh, you know, obviously, the protests, were they big spreaders? No, but they're probably you know, moderate-level spreaders here and there. There are people who got it. A whole bunch of cops said they tested positive afterwards. Um, they were not super spreader events, thankfully, but this is one of those things where people began to realize, oh, these rules are kind of arbitrary. They come and go. In certain cases, you had governors like Phil Murphy in New Jersey who violated their own executive orders on gathering in crowds because they felt like it was that important, except the guys who wanted to open their business say, opening my business is important to me too. So I don't think we're ever going back to lockdown America. Whether or not you think that's a good idea, I think there's been there's not enough trust anymore. People have decided, I'm going to try to function as best I can. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to try to social distance. But you can't tell me I have to close the doors to my business anymore. And so here's the thing. We have taken our toughest hit economically from this virus. It's all, it's all getting better from here on out here. That might be slow. Might be pain. Might be a very long, difficult road up ahead. But we're not going to have that. You know, I think there was one estimate that calculated roughly one third of the country um, had no income during the peak of the shutdowns. That's a really, really bad state of affairs. So we will see how this. Uh, you know, we will see how things shake out. Things are moving in the right direction. And uh, I think if you're the Trump administration, you want every bit as good news you can get, and you kind of spotlight it. And uh, between you know financial news and scandals for Democrats and uh, good economic news. You're probably feeling pretty good this morning. Yeah, and if your opponent thinks Ebola is the same as COVID, uh, you can probably make some hay out yes. of that too. That was uh, that was quite the moment yesterday. Oh, you, you want a bonus fourth good martini, everyone? <laughs> Go for yesterday. It. You know, as I saw Car uh, Kamala Harris had, had made this point, and people had been very excited about. Uh, oh yeah, you know, remember Ebola? Only two people died from Ebola, and I felt the need to point out that well, yes, but you know how you get Ebola. Somebody has to transfer a bodily fluid that has Ebola in it onto you. Um, obviously, this means, you know, sexual contact. It means blood transfusions. Now, here's the thing. When somebody gets Ebola, they do tend to bleed from orifices. That's really gross and ugly. Uh, contag what's the contagious outbreak featured that. Ebola is bad and scary. No two ways about that. But Ebola is not spread by coughing and sneezing. It's not a respiratory disease. It doesn't get spread by being airborne. So, you know, it's one of those things where like, you know, oh, well, why, why do they do such a good job with Ebola compared to, well, coronavirus is tougher. Corona, you know, coronavirus is, is, is much more of a greater challenge because of how it spreads. It's much more contagious. So the idea, huh, well, why can't we handle this as well? I mean, it's a different virus. <laughs> so again, so, but anyway, so I made this point on Twitter. And you know what's just wonderful, Greg, is I now have that option of you can allow replies or not allow replies. <laughs> And I put that out into the world, and Greg, no one could reply. And I just, <laughs> like, as if, you know, Yoda had taught me the Force. I could just kind of, no longer would I need to block anyone, mute anyone, be frustrated by anyone. I simply put that into the world. And if you like it, great. If you don't like it, fine. But you don't have, you can't reply to me, and I don't have to listen to you. It's just delightful. It's a beautiful new morning in America, Greg. <laughs> the only thing better would be an edit button, but that's pretty darn close. I guess. Yeah, it's, it's technologically infeasible. <laughs> Apparently, sometimes Twitter is like the parchment. It's, it's like, you know, ink quill. You can't change it once you've done it. Amazing. Jim, it's nice to have some good martinis across the board today. See you tomorrow.
See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our sponsors, the good folks over at the Bradley Foundation. Check out their Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series at bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'd be very grateful for a kind review and a five-star rating. Also, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.